Thanks, Justin. <clears throat> Good evening. It's great to see everyone. I tell you, um, every loss is tragic. Every, everybody that's sick and hurting is, is a pain in the heart of all of us. But um, I tell you, it's been a long time since the passing of someone has nailed me to the wall like uh, the passing of Mamie. She's just been such a vital part of this church. And, um, you know, someone, I mean, this happens regularly. Someone can be sick and in the hospital and you not even know it because of the restrictions. And then even if you know they're in the hospital, you can't see them. And it is so frustrating and so tough for the body of Christ. And uh, that's what I've heard this week from several sources is just how do you recover from a loss of a precious lady like that? But I guess we do it by remembering where she is. And uh, I doubt we could broker a deal to get her back for even one of my sermons. But uh, <laughs> Mamie, we love you and you are so special, so special. Fathers, we open our heart tonight to the word of God. We ask that you would give us strength. Thank you for these folks that, have, that are able to be here tonight. For others that will be listening later to the message online, we thank you for every life, every, every soul, every spirit. Every one of them is important. Every one of them matters. Every one of them is worth the price of the death of Jesus on the cross. So thank you for everyone who's hearing in whatever context. We just pray that you would help it come alive in our hearts tonight. And uh, let our faith continue to grow and be strong. Let us be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> loved ones, I want to apologize to you. Um, <clears throat> I'm coming in late and I'm leaving early. But uh, I'm just not back 100% yet. And... Um, I, um, I mean, I don't, not contagious or anything. That's not what I'm talking about. But just for me and you, um, just give me a little bit of time to get, get my running wind back. And uh, I miss, I, I miss being a more active part of the congregation. You hear, you hearing what I'm saying tonight? Um, I can't tell you how much it bothers me. Uh, the idea of coming in and going out, that, that, that's, that, that's like a celebrity status, you know. And that's not what this is about. I'm just, uh, thank you for understanding. This. It, it's probably not bothering you. It, it just bothers me that I have to do that. But, but we're getting there and better days are coming. And um, uh, I'm feeling better every day. So thank you for, for understanding and just letting me love on you from afar. Somebody brought in some stickers and I grabbed like six of them. Big sticker said, I love hugs. And I thought, no, oh, I better wait. If I put that sticker on, I will be mangled before I can uh, uh, get out. But uh, I, I say that jokingly, of course. But please know that I love you. You are my heart. I pray for you every day. And um, this is just a tough time for all of us. Um, but we're getting through it. And God is going to help us through it. So thank you for understanding my dilemma. While I, while I get back to 100%. We, in fact, last week um, I was out of town, so I went ahead and did the, the service by video. And um, tonight we want to pick up with number two, the life of Moses. And as Justin explained, or Corey, one of the guys explained, the whole title of the message is The Life of Moses, Discovering God's Hand and God's Heart. Uh, it's not just a biographical study of Moses, it, it is that, and um, we're it'll it'll take us through the end of the year, right up to the holidays. Um, I'm going to share a few weeks with Pastor Corey in the middle, but we got a part one and part two, and it'll take us all the way through the end of the year to get through the life of Moses, and it's going to be uh, presented in a way that you will understand. This is how his life started. This is the mid part. This is the end. But more important than the chronology is the idea of this journey. Moses was known for two things, and we'll talk about some of those passages. There's about three times, maybe more depending on 
how translations um, deal with certain verses. But about three times, it may, Moses makes it clear, I want, to, I want to see your hand, but I want to see your heart. I want to know not just your works, but your ways. And can I tell you, that's one of the most frustrating things about God. We want to see his hand. And he says, ah, don't worry about my hand. You need to see my heart. In fact, the more we see his heart, don't misunderstand me, but the less necessary it is to see his hand. Somebody asked me, Pastor, why doesn't God just heal the viruses? Why doesn't God just do all of this stuff? You know, it reminds me when I was a little boy, we're sitting there watching Gunsmoke, which is, you know, every Christian watch Gunsmoke. And, and uh, Chester Lampton, my grandmother said, Doc Adams is such a good doc. And my mom said, yes, he is. My dad said, oh, yeah, I'd go to Doc Adams with anything. And my grandmother kind of leaned back and said, well, why don't he do something about Chester's leg? You know? <laughs> And uh, of course, if you're not a Gunsmoke fan, you don't know what I'm talking about. But sometimes we sit back and we say, God is such a good God and so powerful. Why doesn't he do this? Why, why doesn't he do that? And I believe God is going to come through with healing in many lives before this is over. I suspect God is doing more healing and more um, keeping than we realize. But, but I want to tell you this. I, this is, I'm not ashamed to say this. I've, I've talked this out with God. I don't know a time in my life where long term, oh, I've had days, maybe weeks, but I don't know a time in my life where it feels like God is doing less than he's doing right now. Now, you don't have to say amen. I know you're afraid God will kill you on the way home, but no, you don't believe that. But I, I want to tell you, this is a time it feels like God is not doing what we're asking him to do. Now, you don't have to say amen to that, but I, I've thought it through before I said that in, in great detail, and I don't have all of the answers. That is not a statement of doubt or unbelief. It's a statement of amazement because we know it's his heart to move. But let me tell you what I'm beginning to believe with all of my heart. I'm beginning to believe that the reason it feels that way is that this is going to be a day when we come away knowing more about God's heart before we know about his hand. If God healed everybody today, do you know what we'd do over the next 20 years? We would point back to... Uh, July of 2020, when God healed the nation of a virus and everything we stand for and everything we teach and all of our logos would be about healing. But God is doing something different. God is dealing with the idea of the harvest and us becoming his people. Now he's healer and he's going to heal and God is going to do more than we can imagine because it's his nature to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can ask or think. But loved ones, I've become as convinced as surely as I'm sitting here that this season is about God's heart, not just his hand. And I believe that that's why Moses is so important and why the way we're doing this study is so important. Moses came away understanding what God could do, but he also came through life understanding who God was. And that's what we need in our churches. That's what we need in our pulpits. That's what we need return to our universities and seminaries and Bible college campuses. We need people that not only understand what God does, but people that understand who God is. So don't lament the quiet times. Don't lament what God forms in the, in the crucible of suffering. You know, when Paul talked about the fellowship that was so important to Jesus, it was the fellowship of his suffering. And we don't like that as Pentecostals because we're against sickness, and rightly so. But there is a fellowship that can only be forged in suffering. And I suspect, I suspect that when day is done and when we've walked through the worst of this, and when we begin to inherit the new thing that God has for us, we are going to look back and thank God for every question mark 
as well as every exclamation point. Well, I've got to go on. I don't know why y'all got me sidetracked on that. Because tonight's subject is called giving our babies to God. Giving our babies to God. Let's read the story in scripture in Exodus 2. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. I'm sorry. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, we've got to understand something. She didn't look at him and say, Whew, you look better than your brother. I'll try to keep you. No, it's not when they saw that he was a beautiful child. They thought, boy, this is a child worth saving. No, what that means, and we'll talk about it, is they saw into the, into the idea not only of decency, where a child should, should live, uh, every child's life matters, but they also saw into it that there was a destiny, that every child has a destiny. We don't look at children and say, well, you're a handsome fellow. You live. No, it was, it was they, when it says that they saw he was a beautiful child, please disabuse yourself right now of the notion that they looked at him and said, well, he's a fine strapping young man. We got to be sure he survives. No, it meant this plain and simple they looked into the face of this baby that if they let this baby live it would cost them their own lives and they said this is too much to, to destroy we can't allow this to be thrown away there is a destiny behind this little sucking baby and we need as a as a as a culture I don't know why I'm crying tonight I'm sorry but we have got to get back to the point where we reclaim our pro-life emphasis. And, and we've got to understand that until the church embraces life for all, we can't embrace life for some. And that's why abortion has to be dealt with. I, I tell you, I think, I, I look back, I thank God for those two Sundays in January um, where God riveted our attention on the idea of abortion and that that's not going to be a part of our culture. It's not going to be a part of our philosophy. And, and I felt for weeks that the enemy ripped it right out of our hearts with the virus and with everything. But you know what I really believe? I really believe that God gave birth to something in our congregation just in time. I don't think the enemy has ripped anything out of our hearts, but I think God brought it at a time that it would be sure to survive. And the message of life is like little Moses that was supposed to have been dealt with, thrown to the crocodiles, literally. But out of that destiny with death, out of that covenant with death, God brought life for an entire nation. I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. He was a fine child. They hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and, and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Now, this was all by design. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, <laughs> and her attendants were walking along the riverbank She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? And she probably could tell it was Hebrew because of how he was, was wrapped, uh, possibly that he was circumcised. She knew that this was a Hebrew child. Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, which means drawn out because I drew him out of the water. Now I've got a I've already spent my extra time on introduction, so I need to really kind of keep moving. But I want to introduce you to Moses. We talked about last week the principles uh, that surrounded Moses' life. We, we talked about the idea of calling out to God. 
And we talked about things like God does not forget in the darkness what he spoke in the light. We talked about God hearing the cries of the people of God. And now God, remember God said, I heard, I see, and I've come to do something about it. And it was this life through which God began to move. As we look at Moses' life, we see it outlined in Acts chapter 7. I tell you, I wish every Christian knew their Bible like old Stephen knew his Bible. Uh, Didn't even have a chance to prepare, no notes. Called out um, knowing that it was... I'm crying over everything. That it was probably the the last... last lesson he ever would teach he gave an exposition of the life of Moses that was phenomenal and it was divided basically into three parts like we study it there was the 40 years in Egypt as royalty Um, the first Bible lesson I remember in Sunday school we used to have these this beautiful artwork on the children's Sunday school paper And it was little Miriam looking over from the side, Moses in the basket, Pharaoh's daughter daughter and and her servants. And it was just, I remember the beautiful colors, but it was was really kind of a a, a pristine um, antiseptic picture. I, I didn't understand, and nor were they trying to teach us, the horrible culture into which Moses was born. It was a culture of death. They wanted us as little children to not be scared to death. You know, in that that, uh, uh, kindergarten class, they wanted us to not be scared to death. But I want to tell you, it wasn't a beautiful baby gone for a float down the river and everybody was loving him and everything was wonderful. He was born into a culture of death. He was raised as the daughter, or excuse me, as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Um, And according to Josephus, Moses was educated at the University of the Sun. And what that meant is that arguably the most prestigious, the most um, um, famous, the most accomplished university in the world was his destination for education. We know from Josephus that he was the commander in at least two military campaigns against the Ethiopians. He was a brilliant man that had learned everything there was to learn for all intents and purposes in Egypt um, uh, in a broad sense. And he had personally led the Egyptian armies into two major wars against their southern uh, enemies, the Ethiopians, and he was victorious. He was the uh, uh, General Eisenhower of his generation. Um, That was the first 40 years of his life. Now you say, well, let's put that into perspective. Well, you take somebody like Justin or Corey, and that's about where Moses was when we come to the end of the first period of his life. Um, I used to think that life probably had to end right about there. You know, that when you hit about 40, there wasn't anything much left but retirement. But there was another 40 years and then another 40 years. The 40 years in the wilderness uh, as a shepherd. Now this was quiet. Um, I, I say quiet. He, he found his wife. He had a couple of boys. It, it wasn't uneventful. He, he probably would have been happy to, to stay there because of the circumstances surrounding his departure from Egypt. He, he, he did what a lot of us try to do. And guys, I, I know this is probably not safe preaching, but in this political climate, we need to understand we all have a tendency to kill the Egyptian. We all have a tendency to take matters into our own hand. And say, with one blow of my fist, I can set things right. And Moses tried to do that. He ended up killing an Egyptian. And we, we do two things when we get in situations like we're in today. We mistake what we ought to do. And we misunderstand how people will interpret it. <laughs> he said, well, surely they'll understand that I'm doing this to set them free. But how many of you know that your best intentions are misunderstood? as often as not. 
Just try raising children. Just try working in a difficult job, you know. Try marriage, you know. Is my wife here? Okay, let's take that one out. Let's do, I was talking about your marriage, not mine. But um, you've got to understand the significance of that second 40 years. From the time he was about 40, he grew into an old man. He married, he had sons, and during this time, God taught him a whole new occupation and a whole new disposition. And loved ones, I want to tell you, I just feel like I'm speaking to someone tonight that you're at a time where you said, I never thought I'd have to start over at this age. I never thought I would find myself facing these challenges now. You know, the, I'm facing challenges for a 25-year-old, not a 45-year-old. But sometimes both a new occupation and a whole new disposition is necessary. Don't be surprised at what God does in your life at the oddest of times to prepare you for the oddest of circumstances. And the first argument you'll have with him is, why me? Why this? Why now? Forty years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then we will, we will learn him in his last 40 years in the wilderness as God's servant. It's easy for us to understand him as a young man. It's easy for us to understand him in that 40 to 80. Because there's some of us here tonight that are in that gap. And, and some of us are, are right in the middle of it. And we understand 40 to 80 very well. But most of us are kind of clueless about 80 to 120. That's some new territory, but it was the most phenomenal time of his life. Um, as I said earlier, it's also true of the 40 years in the wilderness as God's servant. Often those tough years are refining and preparing in a way that we never imagined for a work we never expected. Um, I was... Um, Oh, I'm trying to think. I was old enough to, to I must have been in my 30s. Yeah, yeah, because I was 39 when I came here. So I was in my 30s. And I remember being put through a fire of testing b before coming here. And, and I remember when I was going through the fire of testing, the biggest thing in my mind was, I'm too old for this. This is the test of a young man. And I didn't feel guilty like I didn't fail. I mean, I didn't pass the test. I felt like I had passed every test God put in my life. Not perfectly, maybe not even well. A couple of tests, I probably got a social promotion on, you know. But I felt like I had passed the test. And so there I am, I must have been 35, 36 years old, going through something that I never thought I would have to face in my life. Um, it, I mean, it, it wasn't that it was horrendous or I was in secret sin. I just thought I was past it. I thought I was better than that test. I thought I was more mature than that test. And I remember at the peak of that test, God gave me one of the first open visions that I ever had, uh, one, of, one of the first. And, and in that open vision, I saw a man who was very clearly a refiner, like a blacksmith. He was sitting at the fire and he was working the billows and he was looking down like this into the fire. And I, you know, I, I don't, nothing was said, but I understood intuitively. And you know how it is when God gives you a vision or a dream, you have a tendency, not always, but you have a tendency to just understand something um, it, it, without it being said. And I knew what he was doing. He was working the billows. He was working a foot pump, you know, working the billows with his hand. And he was leaning in down so he could look into the fire. And I knew instinctively, and then words came. He must be certain the fire does not get too hot or it will destroy you. But if the fire does not stay hot enough, it will not do its work. And I knew coming out of that, that God was saying, I've got you. You're coming through this. It's going to be what you think is unbearable and bringing death, but I'm going to bring you through it. But it is going to be hot, uncomfortably hot, because there are things in your life that must be burned away before you can go to the next level. 
And man, I want to tell you, that kept me on track. That kept me steady going through that, that very tough place. Um, there was a lady that had in the church that I pastored in Florida before I left, she wrote a prophetic word. She said, I've never written out anything quite like this, but this is what God gave me for you. I got it and read it, had never received a letter from anybody like that. And I want to tell you, her name was Helen. I, I imagine she's with the Lord now. I don't know. Um, um, Helen, if you're living, I don't mean that offensively. I just, I'm old as dirt and you're old enough to be my mom. So I figured you're gone, but, um, and I'm, I'm making it worse if Helen's listening, but, uh, <laughs> Um, I tell you what she did. Helen outlined about four months of testing and trial. I rejected it when I got the letter because I wanted prophecy to be positive and good. And it was in that you're going to live through this. But that was about the only, the only positive word. But Helen wrote out, I, I, I lost the letter years ago, but I'd, I'd give a hundred of Justin's dollars for it if I could find it. Um, and she said, God's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this, he's going to do this. And that's exactly what he did. And I can't tell you how many times that I would pull that out early in the morning and read it and cry, Lord, you've helped me through number one. Will you please help me through number two? I remember a lady named Dorothy. Now, Dorothy's still around, I'm sure. But calling Ramona, I remember Ramona standing at the kitchen sink and, and Dorothy saying, this is what the Lord told me. I was so low on these points, so low in these places. And Dorothy just addressed everyone, I say everyone, two or three issues that she just addressed. And Ramona turned and told me, and I felt the, the weight of the world lift. You got to understand, a few months before, I had been asked if I would be a counselor and a, a sponsor, rather, for Women's Aglow. I didn't know much about Women's Aglow. I found out that if you're the counselor and the sponsor for Women's Aglow uh, in West Florida, all that means is that you line up behind women as they're prayed for and you catch them. That's, that was my whole job. It was, um, it, it, I mean, I, I remember the first time I went to a meeting, I was so sore the next day from, from I, I imagine, 80 to 100 women, and every one of them fell out, and every one of them fell out violently. And I was the only guy there, and I had to catch every one of them. And um, at the end of the service, the, the lady who, I guess she thought I was, you know, thought women were less or not equal or something, she said, Pastor, would you mind, would you be offended if I prayed for you? And I thought, oh, no, of course. I mean, I, I don't think women are less or have to ask permission to pray for me. I said, I'd be glad for you to pray for me. You little tiny thing. She was so sweet. And I, I tell you, my first thought was, well, thank God I won't have to catch anybody this time. <laughs> and she touched me, just barely touched me, um, uh, <laughs> barely touched my head. And I, I didn't just go down. I went, whoa. I, and I was out, it, it almost knocked the breath out of me and I could not move. And I opened my eyes and she's looking on me and this is what she says, this little lady, she says, hmm. And she looked at me and she said, oh my, do you know that Satan does not like you at all? <laughs> and she's waiting for me to answer, you know. Then she said this, she said, but get ready to move. God is for you and God's plan cannot be thwarted if you hold on to Father. Help him up, ladies, help him up. Well, I want to tell you, I, I, I by no means am I comparable to a Moses or in his league. I'm, I, when I get to heaven, I, I suspect I'll have a thousand year wait just to introduce myself to him. But I tell you, what I found is that that's the way God moves in us. He, he takes us through episodes of life. And, and they often surprise us. They often overwhelm us. And can I tell you this? Before you understand them, you'll find yourself usually confused. Usually confused by it. Um, this is what D.L. Moody said, according to Henrietta Mears in her book, uh, What the Bible is All About. He spent 40 years thinking he was somebody. He spent another 40 years learning he was a nobody. He spent his final 40 years learning what God can do with somebody who realized he was a nobody. That summarizes Moses' life very well. And again, 
We're not looking at event 1, 2, 3, 4, 27 of Moses' life. We're looking at a man that had these experiences while saying, Lord, I want to see what you do, but I want to see who you are more than that. If you don't come to that place, you will be, sooner or later, you will end up being disappointed with God because he doesn't do what you think he ought to do in the way you think he ought to do it at the time we believe he ought to come through for us. It's with his heart. What was it that um, uh, Charles Spurgeon said? Uh, he, he, you probably heard the quote two or three different ways because he said it several times in different contexts. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, who battled depression and did such a phenomenal work of God, but did it through the weakness of the flesh. He said, there are times in my life when I do not understand what God is doing. This is why this COVID virus does not have me overwhelmed most of the time, you know, because we're not the only ones that have lived through something like this. He says, there are times when I cannot see God's hand. I cannot see his action. There are times when the only thing I am sure of is that he is not answering my prayers. But he said, in those moments when I cannot trace his hand, I have found I can always trust his heart. And Spurgeon teaches us what Moses is teaching us. When, there are times that God moves and you can't even keep up with what he's doing. There's so much going on. But there will be times... If you haven't already experienced them, you probably will. And I'm not talking about a bad couple of weeks because, you know, your hormones are out of balance. I'm not talking about a bad couple of weeks because you lost your job and hate your boss and you'd like to punch him in the face. No, I mean, those things happen. Man and male and female alike, we all go through those things. But I'm talking about when your world is rocked. I'm talking about when nothing makes sense and as Spurgeon used to say, the dark night of the soul goes on and on and on and on and on. He said it's at those moments that you cannot see his hand, but you trust his heart. Now, Moses' birth. Let's talk about that just a minute. And uh, we're going to try to wrap it up here on time. Uh, Justin's going to come and lead us in prayer. Um, First of all, uh, I told you that that first Sunday school picture was, a, was an antiseptic picture. It was, it was beautiful colors, a beautiful setting, a beautiful, you know, riverside. But you've got to understand the risk that uh, Jochebed took and that um, little Miriam took to send him afloat on the basket. He was a Jewish male born into an anti-Semitic culture. The goal of the culture was to be sure that Moses did not live. That was the goal of the culture. I, I thank God for the tenderness of Pharaoh's daughter. Thank God for the mercy of that moment. But that was not the culture. That was not what he was born into. Slavery was the order of the day. And Hebrews 11 points out the faith that was embraced by his parents. Amram, his father, and Jochebed. Guys, we cannot talk about Moses' life, even though they're about to leave the scene. You've got to understand, when God appeared to Moses in the wilderness, we'll talk about that next week, I think. Um, do you understand how God introduced himself? You say, oh yeah, he said, I'm the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. That's only part of it. He said, Moses, I am the God of your father. Not fathers. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Do you know what that means? That means when Moses put his worldview together and what little he knew about God, the core of it was not Abraham, as great as Abraham is. The core of it was not Isaac or Jacob. The core was his father Amram who only had him for probably three or four years at the most. But he so ingrained faith into his child that it never left his DNA. It never left his DNA. Um, now we, had, we know his older brother, Aaron. His older sister was Miriam. I love Aaron. Aaron's worthy of his own study. I've never done a study on Aaron, but I think I may like to do that. Um, 
in the next two or three years. You know, Aaron, Aaron was a remarkable man. He stood between the living, the dying. He, he was called upon to, to suffer unbelievable sacrifice to teach Israel holiness. I mean, it was unbelievable what he had to go through. And he was always kind of an inventive guy. Um, Moses comes down out of the mountain. There's the golden calf. Aaron, what have you done? You're my big brother. You ought to know better than this. And I love Aaron's response. This is how I know he was assembly of God. He said, well, we just kind of took up an offering and threw it into the fire and out came this cow. You know, I mean, that's what he literally said. Out comes this cow. And I wonder how many times have we when caught in our sin, well, out came this cow, you know. Uh, I've said that more than once in my ministry. I shake my head in amazement at what I did or what somebody did and my response is out came this cow, you know. Um, but he was the older brother. His older sister was Miriam. And the parents, as well as the siblings, seem to sense a great destiny on this child. That's what it means, a beautiful child. I want to say it one more time, and I'll try not to say it again. Um, the family wasn't saying, well, he, he's, he's a good-looking kid. Let's see if we can get him through the, through, through the hash line. No. They, were, they looked at him with a reverence for life and an understanding of God's purpose on his life. They said, we've got to do whatever we can do to save him. It's the same thing Christians did when they stood by the rivers and went out to the garbage piles to collect the unwanted children. Um, it, it says it's, this is a life worth saving. Now, I want to say this about families. To keep Moses alive, they would have to risk everything. But can I tell you this? Families do that. Families do that. Um, in Romans 1, I think, I think it's verse 13, don't, don't look it up, but I think it's, I know it's chapter one. Uh, Paul described people in the last days, and this is what he said, without natural affection. Now, we use that in a collection of scriptures, which are legitimate scriptures, and we say the Bible teaches against um, uh, gay and lesbian lifestyle. I, I agree with that 100%. The Bible is not against uh, any sinner in the sense that there's some sin that separates you from the grace of God. Um, but I mean, it's, it's not a debatable thing to me. The Bible is against uh, a homosexual lifestyle. It's, it's abundantly clear in the Old Testament and the New Testament. But I want to tell you, this is not one of the verses we ought to use without natural affection. When Paul writes, now he, he'll talk about that in that same section of scripture, but when Paul writes that, I don't think he's saying, boy, I tell you, these people are so bad, they're, they're living a gay lifestyle. No, you know what Paul is saying? I believe with all my heart. He says, they don't even love the way an animal would love. You know, you've heard people say that in, in our present culture, that animals are more protective of their children than a lot of humans. That means that some humans are without natural affection. And we look at Moses and basically uh, other translations say they'll be heartless without love, unloving. But I love the King James Version. I think the King James Version hit it exactly right. There's an affection that belongs to a family and families should never even remotely think of walking away from that kind of devotion to each other. I tell you, parents, I know sometimes... We, we, you know, you might get exasperated, but every time I hear somebody say, well, I've just given up on that boy or I've given up on that girl or, or, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm writing them off. It sends a chill down to the very core of my being because nothing is more wrong. Nothing is more unnatural than for a child to be rejected by parents. It's unthinkable. Now, I, I, I know I need to say this. I also know that oftentimes parents and children go through seasons. And I often know there are times that a child is unlovable. I also know there are times that a parent is unlovable. And you've got to work through that. I know that. I, I, I understand that. I, I would never say that you should never struggle with your parents or you should never struggle with your child. But loved ones, I want to tell you the thing about Moses' household that was so phenomenal 
is that they understood there are some things that, that will not rise to the surface in our home. The culture of death, the, the command of the king. It said they spared Moses for two reasons. They saw the destiny in his life and they were not afraid of the king's command. And I'm telling you, we're living in an age when we've got to not be afraid of every force that comes against the raising of our children. Now, Jochebed and Amram, the father, had both um, faith and a plan. Um, we, we've got, in other words, there's a part of the raising of our children where we have to commit it to the Lord. But there's also a part that we need to do. And, and loved ones, let me say one more thing before I forget it. I don't, want to, I don't want to miss it. I know that every time I talk about families, I know every time I come up to Mother's Day and Father's Day, every time I've, through the years that I do a series on the family, there are people that are racked by guilt and I should have done this or if only I had done that. Um, there, there are decisions that children make that parents cannot assume responsibility for. It's the decision of those children. And, and we, we can't let ourselves be driven by the guilt of our children's failures. I, I understand that. But even if we have made mistakes, even if there are things we have done wrong, this is what I want to come across to you with. There is forgiveness. Jesus has died for your sins and my sins. We don't need to die an additional death. There is forgiveness. And you say, well, I, I wish I'd done this different with my children. I, I, I shouldn't have done this. I shouldn't have done the other. What do I do about that, pastor? You repent. You give it to God. And you let his grace cover you. Don't let the devil load you down with guilt over something that cannot be changed. Celebrate and rejoice the favor and kindness of God. Okay, that's good. I love Proverbs 22, 6. Start children off on the way they should go, and we, even when they are old, they will not turn from it. Now, you've got to understand this about Proverbs. Proverbs has some promises in it, but Proverbs is not a book of promises. Proverbs, are you ready for this? Is a book of generalities. Proverbs says, if you do this, this is the usual outcome. But there's no guarantee that everything in Proverbs is going to happen in your child's life. You know, the, the Proverbs, for instance, says that uh, a, a, a wise child is the delight of his father. Well, we all know of children that made wise decisions, but it wasn't to the delight of their father. I have a friend I went to school with. His, his father had never seen his children, his, his grandchildren. Um, the, the, the letters were returned unopened. There was, a, there was a funeral held for my friend because he turned from uh, Judaism to Christianity. And I mean, I haven't seen him in, in 40 years, but 40 years ago, he had a house full of kids who had never seen their grandparents or any of their family. He's a, he's a wise son, but he wasn't the delight of his father. But generally speaking, you, you understand? And the, the Bible doesn't say raise up a child in the way that he should go and he'll never turn from it. Life tells us that's just not true. But the generality is that if you raise them this way, this is what the promise is. They'll never get away from it. It's their decision to serve the Lord, but they'll never get away with it. And that's why you and I have to understand that every seed we plant will bear fruit. Every prayer we pray will bear fruit. We've got to hold to that. And the, 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 the pathway that a child takes may not always be what we want it to be. Sometimes you're in a marriage where the spouse won't allow you to plant righteous seeds the way you want to. There are just so many ifs and so many contingencies. But what you've got to do is you keep praying for those children. You, you, if you didn't plant seed then, you plant seed now. And you cover them in prayer. I'm, oh, I need to go. You're, you're, because you need to go. I can tell. But, but I think the point I'm trying to make is that the covering of our children by God is the key to successful parenting. There was a ritual associated with the God of the Nile that may have saved Moses' life. That may be why Jochebed and Miriam brought little Moses to the Nile and sent him 
up toward the bathing space of the princess. The god of the Nile, which was a demon, and you can find good associated with any kind of religious expression if you look hard enough. There was a requirement of those that followed the god of the Nile. You were to, in order to enter into the next life victorious, you needed to be able to say this. I have afflicted no man. I have not made any man weep. I have not withheld milk from the mouths of sucklings. It could be, we don't know this. This is not in the Bible. This is from Egyptian heritage. But it could be that as she looked on that baby, even though she realized it was a Hebrew child, she realized that she was going to face the God of the Nile and she needed to be able to say, I've not withheld milk from the mouths of sucklings. Whatever the reason God, or whatever the thing God used, God put tenderness in her heart toward this child and God gave favor to little Moses. Now, I'm gonna say it one more time. If you failed, welcome to the club. Ask for forgiveness, and the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. Okay? Now, let's wrap it up. There's the struggle of faith concerning our children. Let me, let me, let me just touch three things before I wrap it up with the Christian life lessons. Justin, so you be ready to come here. Um, number one, we can stimulate hunger, but God must touch the heart. Do you know that the word uh, that was to train up a child, it, it comes from a root word of what would happen to a baby when it was born. When a baby was born, and if, you know, I, I, don't, I don't guess I should get Justin up here to illustrate it, but when a baby was born, what the midwife would do, the first thing she would do, they'd clear the airways. She would take her index finger and she would roll it around in a pre-mixed batter of olives, uh, 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 not olives, but of olive oil and dates. And she would rub her finger in that and then uh, right on the roof of the baby's mouth, she would swab that. And go, go ahead and try it right now. Do that to you. No, I mean, well, <laughs> when you get home, try it. But what it does is your instinct is to start sucking. And that's, that's the way they got the babies to start nursing. They would touch the roof of their mouth with olive oil and dates. And when it says to raise up a child in the way that they should go, uh, train up a child, King James says, what it means is create an appetite. Create the sucking instinct. And that's what they did for Moses. And you got to understand, Moses never even made it to kindergarten at his house. But there was such a preparation. You say, how do you prepare a preschooler? Prayer. They remember images. I don't know, but God gave the parents such favor with that little child that even when he went into the university of son, the image of Jehovah could not be taken out of his life. Here's the second thing I want you to remember. The safest place for our children is in the will of God. I'm, I am... Um, all my children are grown and I still think every one of them needs me to take care of them. If I had my way, if I had the money, I would, I would buy up land and build houses on the land and all of my children and grandchildren would live within running distance of Papa. That's the way I feel. But I, am I right, David? That's right. I mean, that's what God likes. Um, but you know what I've, I've had to come to grips with? And it's a tough one. Because sometimes God takes them away, I mean, to another place. And I've had to come to grips with the understanding, the safest place for our children is in the will of God. The safest place for my grandchildren is not at Papa's house. The safest place for my grandchildren is in the will of God. And that, that is, I suspect, is probably the, the largest lesson that Jochebed and Amram had to hold on to. They had other children, but they knew this was, they, they were raising this child in a unique time. It wasn't this way when Aaron was born, but now it's this way. And in the most difficult time imaginable, they had to understand when they pushed that baby out into the Nile, the safest place for my baby is in the will of God. Somebody asked Dan Betzer one time, his, uh, Dan Betzer was a revival time speaker back in the, what, 70s and 80s. And 
his son became a missionary to a very hostile, very volatile, uh, explosive land. And somebody asked him, they said, Dan, aren't you worried about, I think his son's name was David, said, aren't you worried about David and his children, his wife? He said, I would be except for one thing. God spoke to me in prayer one night and said, the safest place for any child is in the will of God. So he released them to a volatile situation knowing that God, God's care is not bound by circumstances. There's a third thing I want you to see. I think this is in your notes. Do you, do you have those two points? Okay. And the third thing is uh, when God said to the generation of Israelites that you're not going into the land, he said, I'm going to bring your children into the land. And this is how God introduced the concept to them. As for your children that you said would perish in the wilderness, they will inherit the land. In other words, I, I don't think that was God rubbing their noses in it, but God was saying, even, even though you're not going to inherit what I intended you to inherit, you need to know this. I am never bound and unable to keep my promises. Like we said last week, God doesn't forget in the dark what he spoke in the light. And God said, you, you were sure your children would die out here in the wilderness. He says, not only are they going to survive the wilderness, they're going to possess the land. So loved ones, I want to encourage you, especially if you're going through a tough time with your parents or with your children, with your grandchildren or your grandparents or whatever the tough thing, with siblings, whatever it is, understand this. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. And let me give you the Christian life lessons and I'm done. Number one, uh, God understands our worries. God understands what keeps you awake at night. He understands what keeps you awake at night. He understands he's heard, he's seen, and he will come. Number two, this is hard for us to grasp, except just in a theoretical sense. But if we ever get a hold of the truth of it, God loves our children even more than we do. I know when I'm worried about my kids, I, I, I call through the years I've called out to God, oh God, please, God, please, God, please. And the thing that happened frequently, sometimes, sometimes God would say, this is what I'll do. But he didn't do that a lot. But what he frequently did is to remind me that you can trust them with me because I love them more than you will ever love them. And the final thing, no system of the world, whether it's Egypt or Planned Parenthood, no system of the world can resist God's hand. God is working for us. So as we begin the details, um, as we begin the details of Moses becoming a man, which we'll begin to look at next week. We, in fact, we'll see him as an adult next week because we don't have a lot of information about his growing up. But I want you to know where he started. I want you to see the faith of his parents. And I want you to know that God is committed to our generations. He's committed to our children. Justin, come. And y'all forgive me for slipping out. Thank you so much.